This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. If now you would stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to read Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that the rain, that they rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plantings. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For 10 acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but one ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or seek the works of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers, revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pastures, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a, pr- a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as the dry grass sinks down in the flame, So their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy one of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them and the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets for all his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. 
He will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their, their arrows are sharp and their bows bent. Their horses who seem like flint and their wheels like the whirlwind. The roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day. At the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Emmaus. Um, Aaron, thanks you for uh, reading that lovely passage. <laughs> um, this morning, uh, I just want to say it's good to be with you all here in person and for those joining us online. Um, and before we jump into the text, I just want to start by saying thank you. Um, this is kind of the first time I've been able to, um, to be up in front of you all to do this. Um, but the investment and the, and the pouring into that this church has done for my family and I um, cannot really be expressed. Um, it, it's not lost on me that I um, have stepped into a new role at Emmaus in a season where um, a lot of us um, are wrestling with things or ready for things to start fresh, um, but I just want to say um, thank you. My time at Emmaus has at times been a long suffering <laughs> and also an absolute joy. So um, thank you for the ways that you have served my family and I over the past four years, and I'm excited to serve you in this new way as a staff member at Emmaus. Um, so that being said, um, let's go ahead and jump into the text. Uh, so if you haven't already, uh, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5. That's where we're going to be today. Um, as we jump back into Isaiah, uh, I just I want to admit that when Aaron first told me that we were going to do Isaiah for the next series, I was a little bit nervous um, because if I'm being honest, the prophets kind of intimidate me. <laughs> um, there seems to be a lot of doom and gloom and things that I don't quite understand. Um, I th- so I think it was a little bit daunting at first to jump in uh, to a book like Isaiah. Um, But as I've been studying more and been able to sit under Aaron's teaching on Sundays, um, I just want to say, and I hope that this is true for you as well, that you're starting to see how Christ is revealed in the prophets, how Christ moves and is revealed all throughout Scripture. And, I mean, that's the namesake of our church, right, the road to Emmaus, that that we would cherish and, and understand that Christ is revealed in all of Scripture. And so that's why I'm excited that we get to preach through Isaiah and not... I was terrified now. Um, so that being said, I just want to um, just pause and pray. Um, pray that the gospel would be revealed, that um, the unreached places of our hearts would, be, have, would have light shown on them as we see Jesus working out in this chapter today. So would you pray with me? Father, this morning, we want to come in awe of you and who you are. God, thank you that you have given us a blessing through your word, that we get to come to the table and we get to look at the ways that you have been working in your people from the very beginning. Um, I I pray this morning that, that you would, as I said, that you would reach into the unreached places of our hearts with your gospel, that your gospel would bring to light the places where we need to confess that your kindness and your grace would lead us to repentance. Jesus, that we would go away today 
more in awe of you, that we would want to trust and to live and to obey and to look more like you. Jesus, help us to solve this image problem that we confess that we have. Jesus, it's, uh, it's by your name and through your work that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. So, Isaiah chapter 5. Today we're going to be following uh, really an illustration, a, a story that Isaiah is unfolding for us. And um, because it feels like the thing where we need to put an outline, here's an outline. Um, so today, just uh, to keep us on track of where we're going in the story, um, first we're going to talk about God's beautiful vineyard, how Isaiah opens us up to this picture of the vineyard. Um, as we see that unfolding, we realize that there's a problem with this vineyard that's produced rotten fruit, our fruit. Um, as we look through that, we want to see how, if, if we truly believe that Christ is revealed in all of Scripture, then we want to look for that here in Isaiah 5, and we want to see how does Christ redeem this word to Israel by becoming a new vine. And, and if we believe that, if we believe that Christ has revealed Scripture to us, then we want to act. We want to be doers of the word, not just hearers. And so we're going to see how do we produce the right fruit. That's where we're going today. Um, so let's keep that in mind. So, verse 1. Let's jump in. Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. And he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but yielded wild grapes. Um, I want to hang out there for just a second in verse 1. Isaiah is, he opens this up with saying he's singing a love song to his beloved. And right away, we, we realize that something is different about this chapter because uh, this isn't his regular proclamations. This isn't him declaring the day of the Lord and, and calling out Israel at first. It's, it's an opening of, of love, of a, of a song. This is Isaiah's poem to God. And I want to pay attention to that because um, obviously... From the scripture reading Aaron read, we realize that this doesn't stay flowery very long. <laughs> it gets pretty, pretty serious. Um, but I think we should note the affection that we see in this introduction, because I think it points a little bit to, to who Isaiah is. We get a glimpse into Isaiah's actual heart for the first time for Israel. And I, and I want us to be careful to, to not look at Isaiah as just a prophet of doom and gloom. But I think ultimately, Isaiah is a pastor. This poem is prophetic, but it is also pastoral. See, there, there's a significance to the illustration of a vineyard in Scripture. There's a reason why Isaiah is speaking to his people with this language. And um, something that helped me kind of realize and put the pieces together for that was John Calvin's commentary. And so I just want to read this um, from him and what he says about vineyards in Scripture. He says, there are two ways in which it points out how highly the Lord values his church. For no possession is dearer to a man than a vineyard. And there is none that demands more constant and persevering toil. Not only, therefore, does the Lord declare that we are his beloved inheritance, but at the same time points out his care and anxiety about us. Isaiah is using this, this poem and this language not only to, to show Israel God's care and affection for them, but his as well. Isaiah uses the language of the vineyard to show 
that his prophecy is grounded in pastoral care. And so I want us to, to hang on to that and remember that this morning as we, as we get down into this passage because this isn't a place of, of hatred that Isaiah is coming from or disdain for his people. It's a place of love. And we have to speak the truth and love. And Isaiah realizes that. So he realized he has a care for his nation. But I think we need to talk about um, what Isaiah is trying to convey about God's care for Israel in this language here. So let's look at the attributes that he uses to describe this vineyard, this beautiful vineyard of God. So he says it's planted on a fertile hill. He's cleared it of stones. He's built a watchtower in it. And he's built a wine vat in it for the harvest. So we have to ask, what, what is the significance of these things? What, what adds to this illustration of the vineyard and the care of God for Israel? Um, I have to admit, I did have some help with this, um, not only from my study, but also the fact that I'm married to Sarah. Uh, for those of you who don't know my wife, Sarah, she is a very avid gardener. Um, she's had a community plot in the Rosedale Garden uh, since we've moved here to Denver. Um, and she has a care for that that is beyond my comprehension because, you know, grocery stores. Um, but there are some things I have learned from her in that, in that discipline um, that has really helped me to understand this passage and understand the significance of the vineyard in Scripture. See, when you plant a gardener or vineyard, you have to start with location and the soil it contains. If your soil is too rocky or even lacking the right nutrients, things aren't going to grow, or at least not grow well. So choosing location is vital. Um, and while Sarah is a really great gardener, and there are a lot of things I can learn from her, um, to my knowledge, she has never planted a vineyard. And so I wanted to, to kind of look and say, well, what is some of the significance of a vineyard specifically in the language of the fertile hill? Um, we, we understand that you don't want rocks in your soil, but what's the significance of the hill? And so here's what I learned. Apparently, grapes grow best on slopes, on hills, for a couple of reasons. One being that um, when it is cool, when it starts to get cold outside, the cool air will rest in the bottom of the hill, and that allows the warm air to rise above the valleys and for the sun to rest on the vines. So this helps produce a better crop, and they get to grow for longer when they are closer to the sun and get to receive its warmth. Um, another significance of the hill is just the elevation. When vines have room to grow, they produce more grapes because there's more vine. And so we see the significance in, in God's hill that, that him planting it in good soil and on a fertile hill means that God intentionally placed this vineyard in a good place, that he intended good for his people. And we also have to talk about the watchtower and the wine vat. The language of watchtowers and scripture is always symbolic of protection. The idea that you build a watchtower to keep watch over things that are precious to you. And so in that sense, God has placed his protective hand over his vineyard. And I think we would say the wine vat is pretty self-explanatory, right? If you are growing grapes, you're probably wanting to yield wine. And so a wine vat is a way of God saying that I've prepared this place for you and I've prepared a place and an opportunity for you to produce the yield that I'm seeking, that, that my vineyard has a usefulness to it in the end, right? And I just want to say that all that, it leads me to, to think that God saw his vineyard as beautiful. 
that there was a place that he cherished. And I want us to pause this morning um, because we are getting into a text where there is a lot of things about his vineyard that feel wrong <laughs> to him. But, but I want us to reflect on this idea that his vineyard is beautiful, the idea that God has meticulous care and toil for his vineyard. And, and if you will, I would invite you to close your eyes and, and reflect on these questions. How and where have you seen God carefully and affectionately work in your life? Have you seen that? Where has he prepared fertile soil for you to grow? Where has God protected you? Is there a place, are you in a season now that you feel intentionally placed by God? Have you seen the work, spirit working in you harvesting, reaping the benefits of his work in you. I want us to remember that God, that even when he stretches out his hand, it is in love, that he has poured care and toiled over your life. Let's not forget that. This introduction shows us that God labored over Israel, that he labors over his church, that he labors over us even now. But what does verse 2 show us? He's looking for his work to produce grapes, to produce fruit consistent with the care and toil he put into the vineyard. But how does verse 2 end? He looked for his vineyard to yield grapes, but yielded wild grapes. Wild grapes. I think that seems kind of odd um, because most of us probably don't know the difference between a grape and a wild grape. <laughs> Aren't they all grapes? Grapes are grapes, right? Um, maybe they have seeds, they don't have seeds. I don't know. But I think if we, we look at the Hebrew um, here in, in the text's original language, this, this word wild is better translated as rotten. It's not that God planted the wrong grapes or that wild grapes grew into his vineyard. It's that the vines that he labored over cared and toiled for produced rotten fruit look at verse 3 and 4 and now O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah judge between me and my vineyard what more is there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it when I looked for it to yield wild grapes why did it yield wild grapes we established already that God has unparalleled care and affection for his vineyard so I think we look at verses 3 and 4, and we see that there's no doubt that the problem does not lie with the vine dresser. It is with the vineyard. What more was there to do in it? Sarah will tell you, if you prepare your soil right, if you protect your plants from the elements and bugs and other critters, and you water them correctly, you should expect a good yield in your garden. Isaiah is telling Israel that God went above and beyond to set them up to succeed. He literally couldn't have done a better job. It's like God is saying everything he has done should add up to the yield he expected. If you take care of your garden, you should expect a good yield. But they ended up producing rotten fruit. And what do gardeners do with rotten plants? 
They no longer give them care and affection. They pull them out and they toss them aside to make room for new plants. Look at verse five and six. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. And I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. I don't think Sarah has ever commanded or shaken her fist at the clouds to not rain on a bad tomato plant. Um, but, but I think you get the picture here. Um, God is looking for a yield that has not come, that's not consistent with the work he put into it. And so he's going to remove the plants. Because what usefulness does a rotten plant have to a gardener other than to be tossed out? And I think we need to look and understand God's justification for this. Otherwise, it feels extreme. What is the fruit he expected to yield from his people? Why are their grapes wild? Verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. But behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God's grapes that he looked for, justice and righteousness. He looked for Israel to produce the work of justice among the nations, but behold, injustice. He wanted Israel to represent him through their act of being holy because he is holy, doing right before God, but behold, an outcry of rebellion. An outcry from God, a far-off, rotten version of what God expected to yield from his labor. Our failure to produce good fruit is not just an inconvenience for God, for a gardener. It is utter disappointment. It is an outcry. So we find ourselves with six woes, six justifications to explain why their grapes are wild. Because Isaiah is pastoral at heart, he wants to tell Israel these things so they can turn to repent, to receive the judgment on their fruit. I don't really want to get down into the weeds, no pun intended, uh, with the detail of these woes because I think that could be an entire sermon. So I want us to take a 30,000 foot view of what's going on here. And I think to understand that clearly, we need to see that the fourth woe, I think, is the woe that all of these hinge on and could be summarized in. So verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is the crux of their sin, and I would say all sin. It is the backwards nature of sin. When God looked for justice, he found bloodshed. When he looked for righteousness, a rebellion. So woe to those who think their injustice and unrighteousness are good because it is evil in God's eyes. That the darkness of our sin we produce does not represent the light that God intended to be shown into the world through Israel, through us. He expected sweet grapes, but has found them bitter. This isn't an exhaustive list of sin. 
but specific fruit that Israel produced in this time. The reason for Isaiah writing this poem, and, and I want us to take heed of this because these, these things can apply to us just as easily now. And to talk through that, I, I kind of want to take a view through these woes. Like this first woe, woe to those who join house to house, add field to field until there's no more room. This is greediness. This is injustice done towards the generosity that God intended for his nation. Instead of sharing the land in equality amongst the tribes, Israel has, has gathered things up for themselves. They have hoarded their resources, stored up land from their neighbors, and built beautiful houses with nobody to fill them with. Their pursuit of material things has left them poor. Woe to Israel. Look at this second woe, verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or seek the work of his hands. So starting their day drinking, probably not a great idea for anyone, (laughs) and uh, going late into the night drinking, not a great way to end the day either. They delight in harp and lyre, but do not regard the work of God or his word. They cherish finding their delight in created things and man-made things more than the creator himself. I wonder if that strikes any of us as familiar. What does God say the result of this is? Look at verse 13. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. The nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down. Her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low. The eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. What is God saying here? What is Isaiah trying to tell his people? If you chase after these selfish things, if you call evil actions good, if you want to reverse the reality that God has set for us and his intentions for his vineyard, then he is going to correct them. He is holy. Instead of feasting on material things of this world, he's going to strip them away. And when you are once feasting and relishing in your resources, you will be brought low. You will be hungry and thirsty. He's telling, telling Israel, these houses and this land you held for yourself will go to ruin. And the very people you cheated, the very people you oppressed, they are going to reap the benefits of your downfall. They will dwell amongst your ruins. What is God saying? If you do not do justice and live in righteousness, then he is going to have his justice. He is going to have his righteousness, and it will be your calamity. Woe to you. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, 
who draw sin as with cart ropes. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher, had this to say about this woe. Such a slave is man to iniquity, that unworthy motives and indefensible reasons, which appear no stronger than little cords, nevertheless hold him as with bonds of steel. And he is fastened to the loaded wagon of his iniquity as a horse is fastened by a cart rope. When we make little, when we minimize our sin, we, we can't see beyond the fact that when we think that we are tied to it just by strings, easily broken, we don't understand, Israel isn't understanding the gravity of their sin. That is a burden beyond what they are actually able to carry. Like a cart drawn by a horse with thick ropes. Look at the last woes. Woe to you if you think yourself wise. Or woe to you if you abuse your power over the powerless. If you accept bribes and you abuse your power. That sounds familiar. (laughs) I think a lot of us could think of one or two people that have been accused of that. What do all these things have in common, though? What's the common thread? They go against the intentions of God for his vineyard. They mock his care and his affection for his people. Our sin is a mockery of the blessings of God. So woe. Woe because we have been given every advantage to produce the right fruit. We are made in God's image, yet we seek to find our identity in lesser things. We have been given a glimpse at his glory through creation. We live in Colorado. The mountains are right there. We get to see his glory and his majesty in those things but we are incapable of looking beyond them to see that their worth is not in them of itself, but their worth is found in their creator. Woe to us for our nearsightedness. What else could God have done in his vineyard? He's done it all. Yet inevitably we produce fruit inconsistent with the lavish blessings we received But why? Why is our sin ever before us? Go ahead and read the rest of the chapter. Look at at the rest of it. It does not end well for Israel. The hand of God is being outstretched against his people. He's sending an unstoppable force of destruction down on them. He is clearing the vineyard of its walls and its hedges to make room. To start over. Isaiah writes to his beloved God to remind him, to remind Israel that they were once God's beloved. God looked, healed good fruit from his vineyard. And God at the beginning of creation, this was the, his intention all along. His intention with Adam, his first son. But Adam sinned, produced wild grapes. And then through the promise, through God's covenant, he looked to his son Israel. But they produced wild grapes. 
if God is ever going to have a perfect bearer of his image, proof of his labor and his toil and his beautiful vineyard, he needs something else, someone else. And it can't be us. Paul tells us in Romans that we are the vine of Adam, that we are grafted into this vine of sin, only capable of producing rotten grapes. We need a new vine if we are able to do justice and to live righteous. John 15. Tim already gave us a spoiler alert. The very first verse. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. See, Jesus. Jesus is the vine that meets the expectations of God, of his vineyard. And I want us to be careful to, to not look at this and to think that, that the answer is just to cut off the bad branches, that Jesus fulfills us in that way. What God is saying here, what Isaiah is saying to Israel, is that the vineyard is rotten at the core. The vines are not salvageable. They need a new vine for his vineyard to be beautiful again. But that's what Jesus provides for us. A new vine, a true vine to be grafted into. A vine that we become branches of that can produce the right fruit again. Jesus entered this world without sin. There could be no woes spoken to him because nothing could be counted against him. He only did justice. When God looked for justice and righteousness, he looked at Christ and saw him live a perfect life. He only did justice to those who were oppressed. He only lived right in God's eyes. When God looked for grapes, he saw them yielded in Christ's work and life. But behold, bloodshed. Behold, an outcry. Because the vine dresser needed to make room in his vineyard for this perfect vine. We were to be tossed aside through the wrath of God. Verse 25. Isaiah 5. Therefore the anger of the Lord is kindled against his people. And he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked. And their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger is not turned away. And his hand is still stretched out. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus. Hanging on a tree on a fertile hill the mercy and the blessings of God in his vineyard forsaken, his hedge torn down, trampled. On that day, the earth quaked. On that day, the shaking of the earth moved corpses from their tombs. For the anger of the Lord could not be turned away until the unyielding vine was torn out, cast down. But Jesus took that for us. He made a way for us not to receive the wrath of God, but to be grafted in. To receive 
the yield, the fruit of his vine. He is the vine. We are now the branches. See, Christ, now resurrected in life, has defeated the cycle of death of Adam and Israel. He has made a way for us, a new vine. He has been planted in the vineyard. It is beautiful again. But what do we do with this beautiful vine that has been planted in the vineyard for us? Look back to John. Verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. We don't have to try to produce our own fruit anymore. We know that our vines at their root were rotted by sin, but we now have become branches of this true vine. The only vine that won't yield wild grapes. Christ in you. You in Christ. That is the promise of this new vine, of this vineyard restored, that we only have to abide in him. But what does it mean to abide? Jesus shows us the way. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept the Father's commandments, abide in his love. What did God look for from his vineyard? Justice and righteousness. Jesus and his love for us displayed on the cross, he has provided us justice. He has provided us and covered us with his righteousness. But he's calling us to abide in him, to keep his commandments, to live on mission, to make disciples, to see Denver transformed by the beauty of what he has accomplished. So maybe we should look at the woes. The woes that show us what happens when you don't abide. The fruit that comes from not abiding. But what would it look like if we were to produce fruit consistent with the vine that we are the branches of? To abide in Christ. What would it look like for the woes to be redeemed? I want to look back at verses 13 and 17 of Isaiah 5. Therefore my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. The nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. What would it look like if his therefore was a therefore an abiding in love, not a woe? What does it look like to abide in Christ? Looking at this, these couple of verses. 
Maybe it looks like abiding in his word. To not receive rebuke for your lack of knowledge. If we believe that we've been given a blessing through access to scripture, the word of God, then to abide in Christ is to hang on its every word. We look and we find justice and righteousness according to the life of Christ. What a gesture of love to give us an account of his life. To give us a way to see how God has from age to age been working faithfully in his church. That from the very beginning, the first time that his vine yielded wild grapes, he had a plan to plant a new vine. Praise be to God for that. We've been given access to that story. We've been given access to a reminder of Christ's work in us, Christ's work in his people. Could we rest in that? Could we abide in that? Could his word be enough? Maybe it looks like humility. I think if we were to look at that fourth woe, the crux of all the woes, is a lack of humility. It's a lack of fooling yourself into thinking that your evil is good. Could a humble posture not redeem greed and pride and arrogance? God says he is exalted in justice. If you abide in love, you will show it to those around you. You will do justice and be generous with it. God shows himself holy in righteousness. When we do what is right before God, we are exposed and reminded of his character, of what makes him holy. When we keep his commandments, we begin to look more like his son, the one who kept them perfectly. So abide in Christ. Be desperate for Christ. Hunger and thirst not for the things of this world, but for Jesus. And may us to abide in Christ is to identify with him. To remember the life he lived. To suffer with him. To follow him in obedience even when it costs you. That's what it is to be a disciple. Let's not just be hearers of the word, Emmaus, but doers. And the truth of the matter of this is, all these things are possible if we abide in the true vine. If we rest in the truth and in the knowledge that we are the branches of a better vine, of a truer vine. This pastoral poem is not our final fate. Because Isaiah's hope for Israel is found its fulfillment in Christ. The wrath of God has been satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus. We only need come to the table to die to ourselves and be found in him, branches of his vine. If you feel like you're in a season where you don't see fruit, if you reflected earlier and you couldn't find God, Maybe it's not because God isn't there carefully toiling over you, but you have not abided in him. So can we, either for the first time or maybe a remembrance, a coming back to, 
abide in Christ's love this morning. May as we have a patient, caring, affectionate vine dresser who has prepared a beautiful vineyard for us and a vine that is perfect and bearing good fruit in Jesus. Can we rest on that goodness, on his grace, his kindness for us this morning? Let's pray. Jesus, we see you in scripture, all throughout scripture, that you are our only hope. Jesus, you are only good. We try and often we fail. So would you help us down to our knees in humility? God, would you help us to accept this vine? Would you reach into the rot of our lives and restore us in Christ? That we could find our nourishment our passion, our desires, not in the things of this world, but in the living water that the true vine rests in. It's found in. God, we ask these things. Would you continue to reveal Christ to us through your word? And would we humbly and obediently choose to follow you because you have good intended for your vineyard? You have a usefulness for us in the harvest. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.